0: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Before I get started on this sermon, I do want to take a moment again to uh, thank all of you who've worked so hard to make this a most joyful weekend. The ordination yesterday was absolutely wonderful, and congratulations to you, St. John's, and to you, Trent. Um, on uh, this really momentous occasion for the diocese, for the church at large, and once again, it's a joy to be with Trent today, who is, this is the first day he's getting to preside at the Eucharist. He presided at 8, eight o'clock. He did fine. He didn't blunder. It was, <laughs> You know, I think it's a little nerve-wracking when you're surrounded by someone like Ron, who is so professional and so good, and also by your bishop. Uh, but Trent plowed along as if we weren't even there, which was just fantastic. So well done, Trent. And I do want to take this moment to thank um, Ron, your interim rector, for just the great work that he's doing with you, bringing you through this transition, and to assure you as a congregation that your diocese is paying attention. Um, We are on track. I understand Tristan had a good meeting with the search committee yesterday, and um, fear not. All shall be well." So as I was listening to these lessons this morning, it made me realize, or I began thinking that dancing is dangerous. (laughs) I mean, my gosh, you have King David. I love that story. I mean, you just imagine King David almost dressed in nothing, dancing before the Ark of the Lord, people around him just rejoicing because it's as if the Holy Spirit, God, is coming back into their midst and he's just filled with such joy. And unfortunately, his wife didn't like the picture she was seeing. And and in fact, that led to them not having marital relations anymore for the rest of their life. It's kind of sad, really. (laughs) And then we have Salome dancing. And what a grim, grim outcome that was for dancing. But I want you all to dance. You know, I I was saying to the earlier folk, and I'd say to you as well, what would it be like if we as a community at the end of our service just went out into the square and started dancing wildly in Jackson because you're just filled with the Holy Spirit, because God is in our midst. We're just here uh, like Pentecost, filled with joy, with grace, with power, with wonder, and we can't contain ourselves. People would think we're crazy, but they'd notice, wouldn't they? That's how I want you to be. I want you to be crazy in love with God in a way that uh, just attracts folks around you. By the way, I noticed Bishop Dorsey's here. Hi, Dorsey. The Bishop of Pittsburgh is here. What a joy to have you among us today. <laughs> so that's not my sermon, that's just the warm up, okay? Last year, in the last round of visitations, um, I I focused on within our 49 congregations in the Episcopal Diocese of Wyoming, I I wanted us to just live into the fact that we are bearers of God's light. The same light that is in our Lord is also present and available to us. And this year, I, I have had a sense of a call to focus on healing and wholeness. Healing was a huge part of our Lord's ministry. Far more than physical healing, our Lord sought to heal the division, the separation caused by our human sinfulness, the division and separation of human beings from God. And thus he stretched out his arms upon the hardwood of the cross. It was our Lord's healing ministry that drew me back into the church when I had wandered away in my youth. And I believed then... And still believe now that God is active, involved in our lives, powerful, and always present and ready to open himself to us as we open ourselves to God. Our God is ready to work through us as we open ourselves to being a channel of his spirit, a vessel of his grace and power. Do you believe that? Are you confident in that? Do we need to grow in that? I'm seeing a few head nods. Yeah, I think we do. So one of the first real and intentional deep experiences I had with, of God's grace and healing power was when I lived in the monastery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Society of St. John the Evangelist. And I had the opportunity to live there with the monks for a year. And during that time, I engaged in a simple form of contemplative prayer, breathing in the first syllable of Jesus' name and breathing out the second syllable of his name, linking breath to the name of Jesus. I'd like to take a moment for us to try that, just with three deep breaths, breathing in the first syllable of our Lord's name, breathing out the second syllable of Jesus' name. Try that. While living in the monastery, I engaged in this prayer for seven hours a day for the entire year. And each day I had the opportunity to reflect with Brother James, one of the monks at the monastery. And that experience of breathing in the name of Jesus lives in me still, and that was about 37 years ago. That time continues to remind me of God's peace and presence and grace. And in Hebrew thought, to know one's name is to know the person. So in my understanding of literally praying the name of Jesus is to actually be praying within his person. We're praying within him. I have found this prayer really helpful to teach people who are focusing challenges in their life, whether they're medical challenges, maybe they're going for chemotherapy or radiation therapy, or you're entering a really stressful time in your work, but times when we become filled with anxiety, to move away from the anxiety and to link our breath with the name of Jesus is a wonderful and powerful tool that we can live with and live into. Certainly, breathing the name of Jesus, that time of prayer, brought a great deal of healing to my youthful inner turmoil and my quest for meaning. I experienced in that time God's touch, God's grace, God's peace, God's presence, and God's power. While living in the monastery, it was my job to care for Father Williams. Granville Mercer Williams was his name. And he had had a debilitating stroke about seven years before I had the opportunity to live there. Father Williams had been the superior of that monastery, the head monk of that monastery, for close to a quarter century. He was a small man, extraordinarily bright, and he ruled the place with an iron fist. He believed in the power of fear, and he had the fear of all the rest of the monks. And then he had a stroke, a debilitating stroke. And from that stroke, he could not speak. And it was just a few days after he had the stroke that he attempted to, well, he actually got out of bed and began walking by himself. And a nurse's aide at the time saw him and told him in a forceful manner, don't you ever get out of that bed again. And he didn't for about seven years. He never tried to walk again. That's an example of the power of word in a negative way. He was angry, Father Williams was angry, he was frustrated, and because of that history that he had of kind of dominating the community and not necessarily being a warm and fuzzy kind of guy, he had become isolated from his community. The monks would avoid walking by his cloistered room because they were afraid that he would see them and start yelling at them in his unintelligible language. He ate his meals alone and in his room in the cloistered part of the monastery and typically passed his days listening to books on tape. It was a very lonely existence. My job while living at the monastery was to care for Father Williams. So I was invited into the cloistered part of the monastery. He didn't like seeing me very much. So I learned really pretty quickly that I would spend about five to 10 minutes an hour with him and be in the room next to his for the other uh, 55 or 50 minutes. And that during those 50 minutes or so, that's when I would practice the breathing of the name of Jesus. But I learned and decided pretty quickly that we needed to do something more than me just checking in and seeing if his books on tape were working, so I began I introduced or asked him if he would like to pray the daily office with me. While he was the monk, the monks did the sevenfold daily office. They would gather seven times a day for for prayers, also another time for Eucharist. And we began doing the sevenfold daily office. And it was in the first time of prayer that we had those prayers together. I realized this man has memorized the prayer book. And further, he had memorized all 150 psalms. You know, you couldn't understand his speech, but his punctuation was always perfect. And I knew then in in that moment, in those moments, that he was praying these prayers exactly right, though he couldn't express them verbally. This time of prayer... Grew to be a time of deepening relationship for the two of us and a time of mutual respect. And we really grew to enjoy one another's company, though he didn't want to see me for more than 10 minutes an hour. One morning when I walked into his room, he said to me in his unintelligible language, he just was anxious to see me, and he said, Mama, 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 mama. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. <laughs> and you know how when you're with someone who has maybe had a debilitating stroke or a little child who's learning to speak, when they speak, you can begin really to understand what they are saying if you know them well enough. We had developed that kind of relationship. And so I began to interpret his words. The first murmur, murmur, I finally realized... And he was so anxious for me to hear this. And I, I finally realized you're saying, Mama, Mama, I, I want to be. And he shook his head, Yes, I want to be. And then there was the second half I want to be, Mama, Mama. Okay, I want to be. And just had him say it a few more times and finally got it. I said, I, Are you saying I want to be cremated? And he shook his head, smiled, Yes. So I said to him, Right now? <laughs> <laughs> And then he laughed, (laughs) smiled again, but in a very profound and deep way, I knew what he was really saying. He's saying he's so frustrated with his body and its limitations, and he wanted to be free. And for a monk in this order to say, I want to be cremated, was profound, because the monks in that uh, order are never cremated. They're always buried. After a year of working together, he began to join the rest of the community in daily prayer in the chapel, which he had not done for several years, except on rare occasions. He began taking meals again in the refectory with the brothers, without making a scene as he had in the past. And he took a few cautious steps on his own as I walked next to him there was real healing that took place within him. He was able to be in community again and at greater peace than he had been in many years. But I believe there was more going on than just Father Williams. I believe there was also healing that occurred in the community of St. John the Evangelist as they finally came to admit that they were not capable of doing their work as brothers in the monastery while also trying to be a nursing home for Father Williams. I believe the community of St. John the Evangelist was living with an undercurrent of profound guilt, having one of their own so isolated from them all. How can they say they live in loving community when this man who'd been so important in their lives was just cloistered, in a sense, by himself? And wouldn't you think That if you lived in that community as one of the brothers, that you might wonder yourself if, what's going to happen to me if I face a similar medical challenge as we see Father William faced? Will I be left alone to suffer? Soon after I left the monastery and returned to seminary, Father Williams was placed very happily in a caring nursing home. I think he really liked it because he was surrounded by the company of women then, (laughs) which was really pleasing to him. Healing occurred in the midst of our relationship. And I never dreamed that there would be community healing, but there was reconciliation between Father Williams and his monastic community, as well as some profound restoration of Father Williams' dignity. We can do this work. We can be agents of healing, in our own communities. So you may ask, you may ask, why is the bishop talking about this? I'm sharing this because I believe our churches have an opportunity to be healing centers. But in order for us to, get, to engage in this healing ministry with deep authenticity, we ourselves need to be healed and open to the wholeness that comes as we give ourselves, surrender ourselves to God and his purpose for us. Like you, I've heard at times the church described as a hospital for sinners. But sometimes we may more accurately be described as a museum for saints. Saints who feel it's their job to preserve the past and its traditions while being blind to the fact that parts of our proud heritage and precious traditions are very difficult for many, if not most people in the modern world to interpret, grasp, and enter into. Let's be a hospital, not a museum. I wonder how we might become more authentic, more mission-minded, more caring about the single parent and even the traditional families who struggle to make ends meet, more concerned about fair wages so our children won't go hungry on the weekend. I wonder how we can do more than provide a meal to a hungry family, which is no doubt an important first step. I wonder how we can focus with greater intentionality so we may provide the kind of food that sustains one to eternal life. I wonder this because we've been given so much. We've been given a relationship with the living God. And so we should be crazy people out in the world dancing with joy. We are blessed to be continually nourished by the body of Christ in the relationships we share with one another and at our Lord's table. We've been equipped with God's word, and yet we're surrounded by a hungry world, a world and a people blinded by sin in need of God's light and God's healing breakthrough power. Are our churches seen as places of joy and light and healing and reconciliation? Are our churches known in our communities as places where God can be found, met, and understood? Can we become the church on the streets, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our daily lives? Can we become a church, a people who administer compassion and justice, health and wholeness in the strong name of Jesus? Can we overcome our Anglican reticence and our Episcopal reserve? (laughs) Healing is physical. Healing is emotional. Healing is relational. Healing is internal, and healing involves forgiveness, both given and received for ourselves and for others. Healing is spiritual between God and us and between ourselves and one another. We have God's light within us. We also have access to God's power. Power to heal, power to transform, power to forgive, power to bless, power to be formed in God's image. He became like us so we might become like him. We have power to choose to allow him to live through us and the power to join in his ministry of reconciliation. One of my heroes said, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, All I'm saying is that the Bible and our faith and its tradition declare unequivocally that for an authentic Christian experience, the absolute priority must be spirituality. A church that that does not pray is quite useless. Christians who do not pray are of no earthly worth. We must be marked by a heightened God consciousness. Then all kinds of things will happen, he said. We get so caught up with buildings and committees and budgets and investments and meetings and all the stuff that the institution demands. And though each of these can be useful, none of them are supposed to be our central purpose. The world is hungry for a church and a people engaged with and who reflect the holy, Let us be a people who, when folks look at us, they see God's light. Let us be a people making a difference in our communities in which we are planted. May we find ourselves a source of wonder, a source of wonder for those around us. May we reflect the holy in such a way that those around us wonder, how is it that those people are so filled with peace And kindness, filled with gentleness, tenderness, and grace. A people filled with truth and prophetic speech. Calling for justice while caring for one another. A people filled with Jesus. So I call upon you. I invite you to link your breath your life's breath. The very action of your breathing link your breath to the name of Jesus. Live within his person. You are his voice to speak his gracious words. You are his eyes to see his compassionate vision. You are his ears To hear and answer the call of his heavenly father. You are his hands to touch with his healing power. You are his body in the world. So go now when the service ends. Go in power to be who God has made you to be. His good news. And now would you turn to some folks around you and tell them, you are God's good news.